Hello you lovely lot, it's time for a new episode of the podcast series and this week it's with author Fiona Stanford. I thought, oh, this is really ironic. You know, on the one hand, you've got where we are um, mourning a death, and on the other hand, we've got we've got the guardsmen out there who are. If it, if it wasn't for the for the military and the army, we wouldn't have the tourists. We wouldn't have the freedom to come to London and see the sights. And one of those being obviously the guardsmen in their bare skins and and, and tunics. And I wondered how many people actually realised that those men were were fighting men did they realize that they actually do go out and onto the front line as well as doing their ceremonial duties and i felt so strongly that this was something that i needed to to make clear and i i needed to wave the flag for for those families who had lost their loved ones so for the wounded and for the families in general I think it's safe to say that many of us have found ourselves a little bit in the shadows of our partners from time to time, especially if, like Fiona, you happen to be married to a two-star general. In fact, everyone I told about interviewing Fiona instantly asked me what her husband did, rather than about her. So it gives me great pride to be able to focus on her story, which is just as fascinating. But just before we dive into the interview, I want to let you know about the sponsors for this series, the Royal British Legion. The Royal British Legion offers all members of our armed forces community support, but they also understand that sometimes what's needed is just a little bit of advice. Whether it's recommending specialised services, advice on housing, finances or employment, they've got your back. So make sure you head over to the Legion's website for more information. And now to the brilliant episode with Fiona Stanford. Fiona, thank you so much for joining me today. You kindly sent over a little bit of information about yourself before we started recording. And I'm really fascinated by you. I think it is brilliant, um, all the things you've done and all your experience. And I know that a lot of people listening will learn an awful lot from you. But before we get stuck in, please could you introduce yourself properly? Well, hello, Jess, and thank you very much for having me on your show. Um, I, my name is Fiona Stanford, and I think we've, we both of us have to thank Helleth Kendrick, actually, for putting us together. Um, she was a guest on your last series, um, and she's a founder of um, Recruit for Spouses. So it's her that put us together, um, and I'm glad she did, because I'm really looking forward to it. So I've been a... Well, part of the military lifestyle, the army lifestyle, now for the last 25 years, 25 last year, last week, actually, we celebrated our silver wedding anniversary. And um, I am a nurse, a registered nurse. Um, I'm also an author, and I've just become a student um, of homeopathy. So I have a few uh, strings to my bow there. So you mentioned you're a registered nurse, and I know that uh, you've been, uh, well, you said you've been married for 25 years, which from my experience of being married, gosh, for only six years, we've moved house an awful lot. But you are a registered nurse, and you have been through all that time. How has military life affected that, and how has it worked alongside it? Um, Nursing is obviously one of those um, careers that is extremely versatile, um, a bit like teaching. You normally you can get a, a job as a nurse wherever you go. You know, you need everyone needs nurses, and even if it was just to join an agency or join um, the bank of nursing bank of a hospital, you'd normally be able to find a job. 
I have nurse, I had a break from nursing for about seven years when the children were very small. And therefore, if you don't nurse for three years and keep up your, your hours, you lose your registration. So I did lose my registration, but I, I did a return to practice course when we were based in Salisbury. And I did that course at Salisbury Hospital. As soon as I'd done the course, I thought to myself, oh, crikey, what have I done? Because how on earth am I going to do shifts when my husband's away so much with the children being so little? I've, I've completely, you know, I'm barking up the wrong tree here. I need to do something completely different. But then I spoke to the um, recruitment office at the hospital and I just said, look, I really need a job with school hours. <laughs> I know everybody wants a job with school hours. But really, that's all I can do because I don't have family nearby. My husband's away and I just simply can't do the shift work. So they said, OK, well, look, don't worry. We'll bear that in mind and we'll see what comes up. And that was really lucky because a job came up on the respiratory team. So I managed to do that job for six years at Salisbury. And within that time, I had four house moves. So I managed to commute. Um, I think the longest commute was about an hour from Farnborough to Salisbury. And I then was able to, uh, eventually we had to, I had to leave Salisbury because I couldn't make it work with the house moves. But we moved up to Innsworth in Gloucestershire. And I managed to use that respiratory qualification to take me into school nursing. Because if you think about it, school nurses, you know, there's lots of asthma, there's lots of allergy. This school was a school called Ren Rencombe College, which was near Sirencester, and they take children from the age of four to 18. So huge range. And it was the most amazing job I had. I, had, I kept that one down for five years. And during that time, we had five house moves. So for me, that job was my stability. And it was really, really important to me. And I was really sad when we left. But you have to move on. And we were moving on to Oman, which is where we are now. And that was a bit too far to commute. So I decided I couldn't keep that job going any longer. And now we're in Oman. I face the, the issue of keeping my registration going because, like I said earlier, if you don't work for three years, you lose it. And we are in Oman for three years, three months. The longest posting we have ever, ever had. So I wondered how I was going to make this work for me. And although I could probably nurse out here, it would, it would involve changing my visa. But the, the biggest barrier would be the language one. Um, and although the hospital staff all speak English, the patients wouldn't necessarily. And I can't speak Arabic, at least not beyond a few words. So I decided that the only way I was going to get my hours was to um, volunteer. And I approached the Gurkha Welfare Trust. As some of you might know, a Brigade of Gurkhas has been fighting alongside and with, latterly, with the British Army for 200 years. It's, a, it's an old regiment. And before the Gurkhas were um, eligible for pensions through the British Army, they used to go back home without any pension. And the Gurkha Welfare Trust has been set up to support the pensioners prior to the, changing, the change of, of, the, of the payment scheme and to give them medical advice and to help with their housing. Um, after the earthquake in 2015, a lot of them lost their houses. And so I volunteered to, to go and do some nursing for, for the Gurkha Welfare Trust. 
And so they said, yes, please come out, come out. We really need someone to, to, get, to educate the medics about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is really high incidence there because so much pollution in the cities, but also because they cook on open fires. Um, and that's, you know, they get respiratory problems. So I've been out there, I've traveled all around Nepal, um, and it's been just another avenue that's, that opened up to me simply because we have this posting and I had no idea before I came here that those sorts of opportunities would come up. So yes, you can use, you can use your nursing. You have to dig deep and you have to find other ways, ways of doing it. But I've been lucky enough to find those ways of doing, of using my nursing wherever we've been. Which is really interesting to talk to you about because um, I think it's all about adapting. I think um, for me particularly, the frequency of our house moves means that I'm having to reinvent myself every so often, which can really sort of crush you. And trying to get back out of that is a bit of a challenge. So you've mentioned that you have had 17 postings in 25 years. Now, I don't know if that includes house moves, but my goodness, that is an awful lot of postcodes to remember. I have um, done barely anything in comparison and it's already driving me bonkers, but I'm just wondering how on earth you <laughs> manage all those house moves, particularly when you have to give up things that you love. I think that's probably the interesting part because I think that's probably the thing that we struggle with most. Uh, yes, um, and that has been 17 house moves um, and not just the postings too. It, it is hard. Um, people say to you, oh, well, you must be used to it by now. And you think, well, yeah, okay, I suppose I am used to it, but it doesn't mean to say, hey, it gets any easier or... Be, you know, you, you you really want to up sticks and move when you've just made a new friendship group and you've got your children sorted at school and, you know, you've got to find a new doctor and a dentist and all of those administrative things. But I think you have to you have to just embrace it, really. I mean, you know, this is this is our lifestyle. I think when you get married into the military life, you marry. You don't just marry a husband. You 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 actually marry you know, you marry the, I married the army as well. And it is, that does sound a bit corny, but it is like that because it is, you are part of a big family. And, you know, if you look at it like that, that you've, you've, you now belong to this, this big network, this big family, you can get to know those people as if they, they are your family and they will be, they will help you out, you know, especially when times get tough. The, the others, they're, they're always there for you. And, you know, you're always there for each other. So I think when you, when you move, it is sad and, you, and your children have to say goodbye to their friends and you, so do you. But normally you start to bump into them. You think it's a coincidence at first, actually. You think, oh, that's funny. I bumped it, you know, I, we met at such and such a place. And then after a few years, you think, well, actually, we're just all going around in circles and we're overlapping like lots of little Venn diagrams everywhere. And so you kind of do expect to see people that you've met before. But I think if I was to give any advice about moving, and you'd, most people would work this one out for themselves, but for me, there are two main ingredients, really, to make a house into a home. And for me, that are, those are rugs and pictures. And I have people come into a new quarter and we, we've just, we've, we've just uh, settled in, got everything sorted and pictures up, rugs down, cushions, cushions and curtains, those are the other things, but don't worry if you don't have your own curtains. 
I'm not very good at making curtains anyway, but you kind of accumulate them a little bit as you go along. As long as you've got your own personal stamp on it, you'll find people come in and they'll say, wow, this is just like your home, last home, but it's just in a different place. How do you do it? And I say, well, I just chuck a few rugs down and put some pictures up and, and then that becomes me. So it's important to have your identity wherever you go and to, to make that... Um, make that house into, into a home. I, I think with moving, that one of the hardest things, if you, if you decide to keep your children at local schools, then it, it is very, very difficult to find. The schooling thing becomes the hardest, one of the hardest things when you move house. Because inevitably, you're looking for a school before the summer holidays, in order to secure a place. But often you don't actually know what your dress is going to be come September. So you can't get a place at that school because you haven't got an address. And you certainly can't go out and buy a uniform if you haven't got, uh, you know, if that child hasn't got a place either. And you come to the point where you have to decide, um, you know, when they're a bit older, whether, whether you do the, the, the boarding school route or you, you know, you use the local schools. And we undenied about this for... A very long time. We fought it. Neither of us went to boarding school. It was, a, it was an alien environment for both me and my husband. And we wanted the children to be with us. But in the end, we decided that actually it was the continuity that matters. And when we made that decision to put them both into boarding school at the same time, my daughter was nine, my son was 11. Nine, I would never willingly have chosen to put my daughter into boarding school at nine. But if she hadn't gone then, she would have had another two schools in three years. So it just made sense. And it, it felt like the kindest thing to do for them, actually, oddly. And if you do decide to do that, then the moving, going back to your question, the moving does become easier, uh, for sure, because you're not having to find a school every single time you move. You are so right. I think, um, from my experience, moving... Does it's not it's not the that it, it gets easier, but you you you're right. You bump into people that you met two or three postings ago, and actually you do start to work out that you can make new friends and you can pick up the old ones. Um, and actually, it's quite enjoyable. I mean, it's very tough, but um, I think those are, that's a really good point. That and the pictures. I'm a big fan of putting pictures up, no matter how long I'm staying in a house, because um, you have to. Because if you never put pictures up, you could spend gosh. 25 years not feeling like you're really in a home and I think that's really important and I think that um, I'm definitely going to keep doing that so thank you for sharing that. Now although we tend to stay clear of the military on this podcast we don't really try to talk about our partner's jobs but I want to talk to you um, a little bit about the 1st Battalion the Welsh Guards and their 2009 tour of Afghanistan. During that tour, their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Rupert Thornlow, was killed, becoming the highest ranking officer to be killed in action since the Falklands. My husband was also deployed at that time, and I remember it really incredibly well. Um, it's quite a, it was quite a challenging time, actually, for, for a lot of us. I was wondering if you could share your experience of that time. Well, um, it, was, it was obviously a very... Uh, difficult time for the military across across the board and my husband was commanding officer of the Welsh Guards just before Rupert he he handed over to Rupert in fact he handed over 
prematurely, really, because um, my husband, Richard, was, in, was expecting to take the battalion to Afghanistan himself. Um, he'd been involved in all of the, uh, the run-up to it and the exercises and the training. But he was promoted quite unexpectedly, which was a bit of a double-edged sword, because obviously that's a good thing. But he actually had really wanted to take the battalion to, to Afghanistan, but he couldn't because it, the timings weren't right. It was several months before the battalion went away still, and they couldn't hold the new job open long enough. So he handed over to Rupert. And we were therefore stationed near Aldershot anyway, or in Aldershot with, with the battalion. And so I was, I was still there with, the, with all the families because Richard actually was posted to Iraq instead where he was supposed to go for 11 months. And in fact, in the end, he went for nine months because they, they were pulled out of Iraq just a bit earlier than that. So although Richard was also away at the same time as the battalion was away in Afghanistan, for me, it was, it was all relative. Iraq was still a dangerous place to be but it wasn't quite as, as volatile as um, Afghanistan was at that time. So um, I was part of the regiment, but I wasn't. You know, my husband was doing a different thing, but I was still there with the family. So it was a slightly odd situation for me. But I think it made me, it helped me to be able to stand back a little bit and just to see how the families were coping. It was a really, really tough time. The battalion lost seven men. Rupert was one of those. And Rupert's wife, Sally, was and still is a friend of mine. And, you know, it's when you are personally involved, you know, on that level, it's, uh, it can be really, it can be really difficult to be able to sort of stand back and see any sort of way through. So yes, it was it was uh, it was hard. It was hard for everybody. Yeah, and that terrible time and those that experience it encouraged you to write your book. Don't say goodbye. Our heroes and the families they leave behind, um, which you describe as a memorial to show the human face of the support behind the scenes. And how was it? So you you talked to a lot of people who had gone through so much. How was it talking to them? Um. Well, I never had an idea, the, the idea to write a book. I always loved writing, actually, and, and I'd done creative writing courses and things like that. And, but, I, and, but writing a book was something that was, you know, maybe I would do in on retirement, like a lot of people think they will. And it was when I was at Rupert's funeral in the Guards Chapel in London, and I had this moment where I just suddenly thought, you know what, I feel, I really feel that there is a need to write about this, about this whole lifestyle. There was a lot of public support out there at the time. And it was big, obviously, I mean, you know, the conflict was in the news every single day. Nobody could, could, could um, avoid the news, even if they'd wanted to. But I remember looking across from, from the Guards Chapel, which is in Birdcage Walk, uh, you can see Buckingham Palace. You can see the guardsmen guarding Buckingham Palace. And I just thought, this is really bizarre. Here we are. We have, we have Rupert, a guardsman. He, he, we're at his funeral. 
And just over the road, there are guardsmen who are guarding the palace. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of tourists outside the gates, as there always are in the summer, because it was in the middle of um, July. And um, I thought, oh, this is really ironic. You know, on the one hand, you've got where we are um, mourning a death. And on the other hand, we've got, we've got the guardsmen out there who are... If it, if it wasn't for the for the military and the army, we wouldn't have the tourists. We wouldn't have the freedom to come to London and see the sights. And one of those being obviously the guardsmen in their bare skins and, and and tunics. And I wondered how many people actually realised that those men were were fighting men. Did they realise that they actually do go out and onto the front line as well as doing their ceremonial duties? And I felt so strongly that this was something that I needed to, to make clear. And I, I needed to wave the flag for, for those families who had lost their loved ones, so for the wounded and for the families in general. So I started asking people what they felt. And it was quite humbling, actually. And I felt like it was a huge responsibility to get it right. I was, um, Sally was one of the, one of the first ones I spoke to and she said, no, I, I, I want to, I want to tell this story. I want to, I want to, to have, I want Rupert to have a legacy. And I feel that we owe it to the families um, as well to do that. So I started asking her and some of the um, other families, the, the mothers who'd lost their sons, the wives who'd lost their husbands, the girlfriends who'd lost their boyfriends, you know, they were, they just couldn't stop talking. It was a, it was a really cathartic experience for them and an opportunity for them not only to pour out their grief, but to just to leave a story behind for their, for their loved ones. So they're represented in the book. The wounded and their, their partners are represented. The children have stories to tell about moving around and about military life. And then also the, um, the men themselves. I say men, but because in, an infant, in the infantry, of course, it's, it's the men uh, who are on the front line. I am aware that obviously there are women serving as well, but there are men and women who give their stories about how they feel that bringing their, bringing their partners into this lifestyle feels for them. They feel very responsible, actually. I feel very strongly that there should never be any blame. You know, it's a team thing that we go into this together. That if you're married, you, you're, 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 you're together. You shouldn't sort of, I mean, it's really easy when times are hard to start blaming. And I've done it myself. You know, you blame your husband. If it wasn't for him, he wouldn't be doing this anyway. You blame the system because if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't be moving around every two years or more. But there comes a time when, you, you just have to stop being, being that victim and you have to embrace it and, and sort of, you know, be a team, get back together as a team because it can be so destructive if you start to get too critical. But going back to the book, it is quite a bis- bittersweet uh, account because it is, it's about the whole of the, of the, the military lifestyle. It's centered on the conflict in, in Afghanistan and, and on those men who were killed, but it is about the whole lifestyle. And so therefore, it is a book 
for the military, not just for the Welsh Guards, not just for the army. It's, it belongs to all of us, actually. It's not my book, it's our book, because it's, it tells our story. My story is not unique. It's so many people could read it and say, yeah, I get that. That's just the same as, you know, I've had that experience. So it was, it was a very interesting experience for me. And, and as I say, it was very humble. And I'm, I feel very honored to have been, have had to have had the chance to write it. And is there anybody that, that you spoke to, or is there any sort of theme running through the book that really stands out that you think is... The, the, at the heart of it I mean you said how we we're all sort of you know your story isn't unique and we all sort of live this kind of crazy military life that is is very similar but is there anything that particularly stood out from that I think the the theme that ran through the whole book was um was love actually uh love and support we do these crazy things because we love our husbands or our wives and you know, you, you, people in, in all walks of life will find themselves doing, doing things that they never thought they'd do simply because they found themselves in those situations. And the theme of love and support comes through with the camaraderie, not just amongst the men. It tends to be a word that's used for men uh, bonding uh, in times of war, but actually it can be applied to the, to the families back home. It, it is when times are hard and you are find yourself on your own, you never really are on your own. There's always somebody else in that position. And the bonds that were formed during that time were huge and they'll never be broken. Uh, even, even if your friends leave the army military system, you'll always have them. You'll always have them as friends. Um, and, if you go through an experience with somebody, I think that's something that will always gel a, a relationship. And, and that's something you can't break. Um, it sounds like a very sort of depressing book, but actually it does have some, it's quite bittersweet. And there are some stories in there as well about the peculiarities of the household division, because obviously with their ceremonial duties, they've done all sorts of things. And there's one story about one of the officers who was in charge of the pallbearers at the Princess of Wales's funeral. And he, so he writes this account of how absolutely terrifying it was to carry this coffin up the aisle at Westminster Abbey, which is the longest aisle, I think, ever. And they had hobnail boots. And he was terrified of, of one of them slipping with this lead-lined coffin. And although it's, it was a very somber occasion, it was it was it was an angle to 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 that occasion that i don't suppose anyone had ever thought about but he tells it so well and so there's little anecdotes like that which which are kind of off the track of the book but they're still part of it a part of our life and they're part of of who we are and lovely little stories that one one girl who who got married and um she was married to one of the welsh welsh girls and they knelt at the altar and someone had done that that old that old one. <laughs> they'd, they'd written H E on one of his boots and L P on the other boot. So that, <laughs> so that um, the congregation just burst out laughing as soon as they knelt to say their vows. So there's lots lots of little things. Um, so hopefully there's a good balance in in the book as well. And it's those little anecdotes that sort of make military life what it is, isn't it? It's it's the little sort of. The, the serious that's balanced with the, the, the banter and the, 
giggles, which I think is the strength of it. It's, it's good fun. It really is. So you've written a book, which is an epic thing. And I know a lot of people um, talk about writing books, but you have done it. How do you write a book? And you've mentioned recently that you've written another one. I mean, is it very strict? Do you have to sit down and research or do you just go for it? Um, it'd be really interesting to find out how you did it. Well, um, it's quite a big question and I will try and praise it. But I think bottom line, it depends on your why. Why, why are you writing? Why do you want to write? If you want to write because you just simply love it and you, can, you, you, and you just want to write whatever comes into your head, then that's great. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a brilliant way to, um, to pass your time or anything. But if you want to write a book because you want to get a message across um, and you, you want it to be published, then you've got to do a little bit of, um, of homework on that. You've got to know who your audience is. You've got to know who you're writing it for, what age group you're writing it for. Writing nonfiction, which is what my book, Don't Say Goodbye, was, in some ways the process is, I think, probably easier because what you have to do is, if you do this the traditional way and you're not self-publishing, you approach an agent with your proposal. So you, you give them their fir your first three chapters, your introduction, and you say the rest of the book is going to be based along these lines. But you don't have to write the whole book up front. So you approach an agent with your proposal and then they say yes or no, I like this, I'm going to put it towards to a publisher and we'll see if the publisher will take it on. That's a very, it saves you a lot of time, I think, if you do nonfiction in many ways, although it can take a long time to find an agent and find a publisher. The other thing was with my first book, I want also wanted the, the, to help the Welsh Girls Charity. So it was, it was a fundraiser as well, which was one of my reasons too. And the proceeds went towards, the profits went towards the Welsh Guards Charity. And um, it was there to support the, the Welsh Guards who had been wounded and their families who'd lost lost their loved ones and it's still it's still going strong it's actually um, it now pays to employ veterans officer which is the first time they've ever done that so somebody to actually take care of those veterans once they've left the army so you know there's um it does depend on your reasons for wanting to write but don't be disheartened if you come up against a lot of brick walls because publishing is a hard is a hard place to get into, especially now with uh, people self-publishing and, and so on. Self-publishing is also, I mean, I've never done it, but I wouldn't do it personally because I've seen how much goes into, uh, how much goes into producing a book. There are so many different aspects to it. And if you want to produce a book that looks professional, you will end up spending an awful lot of money paying people to make it look professional and time where time spent where you could be writing whereas if you go the traditional route then they pay you up front and you don't have to worry about all the uh, you know what the uh, book cover looks like what the publicity is going to be about the editing the proofreading that's all taken out of your hands and so there are two different, very different angles to approach a, um, a pub publishing book. Yes, and I so I used to back in my my life before 
the RAF. Um, so I used to work in publishing and used to uh, work at Oxford University Press, which is very exciting. But there are proper traditional publishers where if you are an author who has self-published, um, that's counted as a negative towards you and they probably won't publish you, no matter how amazing your book is. So I would maybe suggest thinking really hard if you are writing a book, thinking, thinking about it properly and, and working out whether you can go down the traditional route as opposed to the self-published route because that can cause you problems longer down the line. So now, you have been married since 1995 and I'm curious to know about your military life and how, as a wife, it has changed over those 25 years because um, obviously life has changed the views towards women have changed and I'm wondering how it has changed since 1995 and whether there's anything in our community that has been lost that actually we we should get back because it's quite important I think it has changed it definitely it has changed what well, doesn't change in 25 years especially nowadays um with communications and so on I think I joined um I joined the system, if you like, when it was on the cusp of, of a big change. If I was to talk to somebody when I first got married who had been in for 25 years, their story would be very different. It was, it was really, really unusual for wives to work for a start, for, for a start when they joined the military um, a generation before me. I think partly because there was so much moving around. I mean, Okay, we've had lots of postings, but there were an awful lot more overseas postings in those days. And yeah, it, was very, it was well nigh impossible to get a job unless you, you were very lucky and once you'd got to these, these far-flung places. Um, but it wasn't expected of the wives to, to work. And so they didn't fight it. You know, even if they'd had jobs beforehand, that was just what they did. They just gave them up. When I got married... That was changing. Um, there were more professionals. There were women who'd had, who'd had had jobs like lawyers, um, people who actually had clients and needed to stay in one place because they couldn't really make it work otherwise. And so that was, that was becoming more and more evident shortly after I got married. I think that makes it harder. I think it's good. It's very, obviously, it's very good for for our mental well-being to 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 sort of have have a career and want and pursue something that you was was your identity really but i think it it can make it harder sometimes i mean it's great if you can make it work and that's what we want to to try and help people to do if possible but i think when um when a woman has a career or the spouse has a career that requires them to be in one place and therefore you, you do that, what you're, what you're doing is you're adding on more separations on top of those separations that are going to be forced on you anyway. So you end up spending even longer apart from your spouse than you might have to. Having said that, I wonder after the COVID lockdown, whether this will all start to change anyway, because I think if businesses and so on are realizing how much they can do from home, or remotely, then maybe that will help. And maybe people will be able to, to do more from a distance without having to go into an office and so on. But I, I, I would strongly support anybody who would try and, and you know, maintain their career or, or even 
or even find a different one, the one that works for their lifestyle, even if it wasn't what they trained in, it would be something that's that you know we should encourage and support people to do. But yeah, I think things have changed. Some for the better, and and some not, as as you would expect in that le- in that length of time. And do you think there's anything that we have lost that we we need to reinvigorate and get going again? Because I know there's a lot of talk. Um, welfare always asking us what we would like, and none of us are really quite sure what it is that we actually want. I just feel that there's a lost opportunity here to learn from from what has happened before, and whether we can start reinjecting some of that sort of community again back into um, the life that we lead i believe that that the, that the military is is trying to get people to stay in one place for longer they're trying to they're trying not to it's an expensive thing to move people around every couple of years as much as anything and obviously money saving money is is has become more um vital and will become more so now so i think to be able to stay in one place is going to get easier, and maybe maybe those community that community side of things will get easier as a result. The only downside of staying in one place longer is that's fine if it's somewhere you want to be, <laughs> but if if it's not, then it's pretty rubbish, really. I mean, we all learn to to take the good with the bad, and some of the postings have been pretty awful. And you'd rather they didn't hate, you know, you didn't have to go to certain places and others have been fantastic and you don't want to leave. So I think at least when you're moving around, you've, you can see light at the end of the tunnel. If, if it's one that you didn't really, you know, you're not really enjoying well, it was not for very long. And, may, and you know, the next one will probably be better. But your, your, your question about sense of community, I think, I think no matter what happens, um, they will that sense of community within the, within the military system will always be very strong. Somebody said to me once, and I'd never thought of it like this before. She said, I feel that with you, with you, you army lot, <laughs> that I feel like you're sort of, it's almost like you belong to a, to a, an elite sort of club where nobody else is allowed in from the outside. And that really shocked me because I thought, craggy, I would never want somebody to feel that they were excluded in any way. And it's a really difficult one because unless you're living it, you can't really understand it. And yet we want people to understand it. So we can't have it, you know, we can't have a cake and eat it. And I think the only way around that is for us to work hard at keeping our old friendships the ones that we had before our lives changed. And that might require a bit more effort on our part because actually when you're the one who's moving around all the time, people are going to wait for you to come to them whenever you, you happen to be within striking distance at a, a new posting. But I do think you have to work very hard sometimes to keep your, your ties because there will come a time when you won't be in the military and although you will still keep those friends, they'll all go to different parts of the country. They all come from different areas. And if you try and keep hold of your old friends as well, then you've still got them when you, when you get out. And they've still got you because they feel, I'm sure, that, they're gonna, that, that, that they've lost you to the system uh, sometimes if, if you suddenly just go into a different world that they don't understand. And then, you know, then that's when the friendships just break down and drift away. 
Yeah. So there's two sorts of communities, your old one and your new one. And you're right, you can you could nurture them both because it's it's kind of that unspoken thing that we have in the military community where we just we just get it. We understand each other without having to explain it. And and my sort of civilian friends, even though I am a civilian myself, but my civilian friends, um, they they don't it, it's hard to explain it. So I think that's why um sometimes along the way they get lost. But I think that is very important and I'm going to take that away and I'm going to nurture my old friends a bit more, I think. So what would you say to somebody who is just getting married and they're facing 25 years of, or even more, I think actually, of military life, of military service? What would you say to them? What is your best sort of tip? I would say, enjoy it and try just enjoy the moment. Don't look too far ahead there's always a danger when you when you start on a on a posting that you know is going to be let's say 2 years sometimes it's much less than that but let's call it 2 years those first 6 months you're settling in you're getting to know new friends you know your the children if you've got children uh, settling into new school so it's all busy busy um and then you've got a period of time probably a, a good year before you have to start thinking about moving again. Sometimes you get notice of moving. Uh, 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 you get a lot of notice. I don't think that's a good thing. I think if you know where you're going next, you start to think about that next place far too soon. If you don't know where you're going next, let's say you, you get six months notice, then just enjoy that time in the middle, that year in the middle where you've, you've, you've spent your six months settling in and you've got six months before you move. Just, just without worrying or wondering what the next thing's going to be, because they go so quickly. The, these postings just whiz by. And if you're always either looking back over your shoulder and thinking that the last one was better or looking forward and thinking, I wonder what that's going to be, you're just never going to enjoy the one that you're in. So I would say that, uh, just enjoy it. Um, have fun. There will be good times. There will be bad times. but you know, there will be an end to those bad times. So just make sure that you look after your friends and your family and support each other and take something, take things up, do things you didn't do before. We've all moved into quarters where the garden is shocking and all it is is a piece of grass and no one's bothered. They haven't even planted any spring bulbs. And we've moved into ones where someone has made an effort and, you know, in the spring, the spring comes around, you think, oh, wow, I never realized those flowers were there. You know, you can be the one to surprise the next person, try and take care of it so that, you know, you leave a nice garden for somebody and then therefore you might inherit a nice garden off somebody else. Do little things like that. Get involved in not only the military community, but the outside community with, with your friend, your, your children's friends, parents, you know, do something that doesn't just pigeonhole you into that, into that one environment that you find yourself in and all sorts of things. Take up new things, take up yoga, take up, do some online courses. There's so many things that you can do that you can get to a new place and think, right, what can this offer me? And you'll find it. You will find it. There is. So I think, yeah, there's a few things there. And I think the um, the, the gardening thing has really struck a chord because uh, lockdown here started 18th-ish of March, just as we were coming into spring. And gosh, it was a sad time. But it 
at that point, it was when all the daffodils and the tulips and all those beautiful bulbs that somebody, gosh, many years ago might have planted, that that suddenly bring that bit of colour after a really sad winter falling into a global pandemic. And I and I loved the fact that a couple of years ago somebody made the effort to do that, and now at this horrendous time, I get to enjoy these flowers. And I think that we need to start a campaign to do bulbs. Everybody needs to start planting bulbs because it's just, it's just lovely that somebody a few years ago cared enough. So that's really struck a chord. So that's one of the things I think I'm going to do, despite the fact that I move house every 10 minutes, I think I'm going to start working out how to plant bulbs and do that because I just think it's lovely. There was a lady, we, we lived in near, near Salisbury. We lived near Salisbury several times. <laughs> um, but there was a lady opposite and she was the vicar, well, the vicar's wife. The vicar li- lived opposite us, actually, because we, we weren't on a, on a patch at this point. And Richard went away. Um, I can't remember where. I think it was a, a Iraq, um, let's say, for six months. And she came round, I opened the door one day and she was standing there with her husband and they had one of these bulb planters in their hand. And they said, um, right, we thought we would help you and the children plant some bulbs. Because if we do that now, because he was due to come back in about March. And so if you do that now, then you'll be able to see them come through. And, by, and you, know, you all know that by the time that they come into flower, then he'll be back home. And I just thought, what a lovely thing to do. That was so kind and thoughtful. And she was absolutely right. You know, as soon as the, those bulbs started to peep through, it just felt like he was almost home. And the children loved it. You know, it, it was, they were waiting for them to come through. And, and you know, I just thought, I, I just loved that. The, the, planting, the planting of the bulbs thing, I think, is, is, is really lovely. When, you, when you're not in a place for very long. Yeah, I think we all need to do it. We need to work out how to do it. And we need to do some bulbs. We can do a, the whole thing around it and uh, encourage people to do it. And, and maybe one day I'll end up in a lovely house with lovely bulbs and a lovely garden. I'm quite excited about that. So we're sort of reaching the end, but I want to go back to your book because I think um, that it's quite important that you share it so that we can all read it. So where can we find your book? Uh, you can find it on Amazon, <laughs> not surprisingly. Um, you can also find it in bookshops, even if usually the Waterstones will have it. It depends on how big the Waterstones is. But if you, um, even if it's a small bookshop, you can always order it and they'll always, always be able to order it in. But you can get it in, it came out in hardback um, first and then it went into paperback um, and it's also on Kindle. So you can, you can get all three. Fab, and I will share the link as well so we can all buy it. Um, so this is sort of the end and I have loved talking to you and, and gaining from your experience and feeling sort of happy that, that some of the things that I'm doing is, is working and making a difference. But I was just wondering if there's anything you'd like to add before we finish. I would say you talked about, about um, you know, we were talked slight, touched slightly on, on challenges, um, setting yourself challenges. And I think that's an important thing with, with postings. Um, it, it defines that posting. You can say, oh, when I was in such and such, you know, I did this or I learned how to do that. I think that's, a, that's an important, um, important thing to do. Um, I listened to uh, one of your guests on your, one of your previous episodes, um, Jodie Jones, who's from the channel. And I thought... 
I thought it kind of put my put my little challenge into perspective because last year I did this mad open water swim in Oman from a an island to the mainland, and the island is called Fahal Island, which is which actually means shark in Arabic. I mean, I didn't know that. I didn't realize there were sharks. Um, anyway, so I did this swim, which was four kilometers, and for me. It was, I mean, I, I won't do it again. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was tough. It was really tough. And, um, and I had trained very hard for it. But I have to say, you know, it's all, it is all relative. I mean, and when I, when I listened to, the, to your podcast with, with Jodie, I thought, quite you know, it's, um, that's when I did was a walk in the park in comparison. But it's all personal to you, and and you know every every challenge is personal to the person who's doing it, and whatever it is, as long as you feel that you've got something out of it, I think then it then it doesn't matter what it is, just 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 go for it, and um, I'm sure you'll feel better for it. Yes, because military life is tough, so you might as well have the good bits. I think that's probably the the most important thing, isn't it? Yeah, the most important thing is to have fun and enjoy. Fiona, I've loved talking to you. I've learned so much. Um, it's been really enjoyable. So thank you again for spending time um, and, and talking to me all the way from Oman. You're very welcome. You're welcome. It's lovely, ha- lovely speaking to you and, and getting to know you. Another thank you to lovely Fiona. I really enjoyed talking to her. I think that's a brilliant episode and we can all take an awful lot from it. So a massive thank you and do go and check out her book over on Amazon or in your local bookstores. So that is it for today, but I will of course be back next week with yet another inspiring episode. So I shall see you then.